Welcome to Design 30. My name is Jason Bilyeu, and in this podcast, I provide design strategies and tools to improve creativity, innovation, and overall design confidence. Today, I'm going to be talking about how the opportunities to innovate and come up with new products are really all around us. They're things that you just need to pay attention to and to look for. And really what you need to look for is things that don't work very well. What are the problems that you run into in your everyday life? What are the things that just don't work very well? And to go more in depth for this, I'm going to be reading through the book, The Evolution of Useful Things. And this is by Henry Petrosky. He does a really good job of talking about just some of these common things that we all interact with on a daily basis. And he goes into the details of how these products were actually designed, how the how the concepts themselves uh, even came up. And so I think there will be a decent amount of reading in this episode, but it's really interesting. Uh, I found it really fascinating as I've read through this book. And I think you all will find it really interesting as well. So a lot of this episode, we'll be reading through this book and just making some comments on how these products came about, how there is this opportunity to innovate. Just it's everywhere around us if you pay attention and you look for these problems that need to be solved. But before we dive into that, first, make sure to subscribe to the podcast on whatever whatever podcatcher app you use. Uh, please, if you're enjoying it, give it a five-star review. And of course, one of the best ways to support the podcast is to share it with friends, share it with anyone who you think would benefit from hearing it. And then finally, please go out and follow Design30. Uh, I'm on YouTube, I'm on Twitter, on Instagram, any of these different social media sites, uh, go ahead and give Design30 a follow there and you'll make sure to be up to speed on all the most recent podcasts and when I put out new Substacks, things like that, you will be one of the first people to know. And speaking of Substack, you can also become a subscriber to the Design30 Substack, uh, which again, you don't have to be a member of Substack, you don't have to go to the website. Well, you have to click on the link in my uh, in the show notes or in my profiles on social media, and you just put in your email, and boom, you're subscribed to it. So it's really easy. If you want to support the podcast in that way, uh, please go subscribe to my Substack. Okay, now let's dive into this episode and start reading in what is this chapter chapter five of the evolution of useful things. And the subtitle is uh, describes it as how everyday artifacts from forks and pins to paper clips and zippers came to be as they are. And again, this is by Henry Petrosky. So let's dive in. In the making of sandpaper, an abrasive material is bonded to the paper backing and the quality of the product depends not only on the quality of the principal raw materials of grit and paper, but also on how uniformly and securely they can be combined. Hence, to manufacture sandpaper, it was necessary to develop an expertise in coating paper with adhesive. 
Unfortunately, even with good glue, the paper used in early sandpaper fell apart when wet, so using sandpaper was necessarily a very dry and dusty operation. But in gr the growing automobile industry, where in the 1920s a considerable amount of sanding was needed to finish the paint on auto bodies, the dust was causing lead poisoning among workers. So here, uh, there's a major problem that people noticed. They're doing a lot of sanding in this new industry of, uh, of building cars and doing auto body work. Uh, but it, the paint was causing a lot of lead poisoning because it was all this powder and dust that all the workers were breathing. So there's an example of a problem that this one's a pretty major problem that is easy to notice. Um, but again, it, most of these things, if not all of them, start with a problem uh, that people notice. Okay, let's keep going. Making waterproof sandpaper would allow wet sanding, which in turn would cut down on dust and thus be a great improvement. To remove the failings of existing sandpaper, the Minnesota Mining and Manufacturing Company developed a waterproof paper that one of its young lab technicians, Richard Drew, was asked to take to some St. Paul auto shops where it might be tested. In doing so, he became aware of another problem. So here they came up with a solution to the problem of uh, sanding and being a dusty and dry operation. So they came up with a way to uh, to deliver a, a sandpaper that could be wet, right? So you could do wet sanding and cut down on the dust. And then as we're gonna see here, uh, they sent out one of their technicians, Richard Drew, and he's gonna actually go on site and interact with the customers. And here's where another, uh, another insight into a problem, another insight into a way to improve the lives of other people comes about. So let's continue. The new two-tone style of painting automobiles was popular in 1925, but it presented considerable problems for auto manufacturers and body shops alike. In order to get a clean, sharp edge when applying a second paint color, the first had to be masked, of course, and this required the newspaper or butcher paper to be fastened to the car body. If shop-brewed glue was used, it would sometimes stick so well that it had to be scraped off, more often than not pulling the paint with it. Surgical adhesive tape was sometimes employed, but its cloth backing tended to absorb solvents from the newly sprayed paint and cause the masking materials to stick to the paint where they intended to protect. Clearly, existing means of masking had serious flaws. One day, when he was dropping off a batch of waterproof sandpaper, Drew overheard some body shop workers cursing two-tone painting. The young technician who had studied engineering through correspondence school courses promised that he would make something to solve the problem. So here he, he hears about the problem while he's doing one of his runs to drop off this water paper or this waterproof sandpaper. And this actually relates to something that you'll hear me say a lot. I post on social media a lot. And this is be empathetic to understand the problem. So here he's putting himself uh, in the shoes of these workers. I and mean, he overhears them being frustrated. He puts himself in their position. So he demonstrates good empathy. But then as the end of this says, he promised he would make something to solve the problem. So there he's driven to solve the problem. And that's something I always push that you need to be empathetic first to make sure you're understanding the problem properly, correctly, and you're understanding it from the perspective of the person who's experiencing the problem. But then you need to move quickly into 
this uh, this mode of being driven, this being driven to actually solve that problem. Because you can get caught up, I think, in these empathy cycles where you're just you're so focused on these people, the problem they're having, what's going on, that you never actually get to that second step of, okay, I'm just going to do whatever it takes to solve this problem. And so that's what this guy, this technician, Drew, uh, he has promised himself that he's going to come up with a way to to solve this problem for these workers who are obviously uh, having a bunch of issues. So the book continues, as in the majority of design problems, Drew's objectives were most clearly expressed principally in negative terms. He wished to have a kind of tape whose adhesive would not stick very readily. This not only would allow the tape to be formed in rolls, which could which it could easily and cleanly be removed, but also have enabled it to be removed easily from a freshly painted auto body. Stating the problem and finding the right combination of, adhe- of adhesive and paper are t- two different things, however. The first could have come in a flash at a body shop. The latter took two years of experimenting with oils, resins, and the like, not to mention papers to which they could be applied. After many negative results and suggestions that the problem should be dropped, Drew tried some crepe paper left over from unrelated experiments and found that its crinkled surface proved to be an ideal backing. Samples of the new product were taken by the company's chief chemist to Detroit auto manufacturers, and he returned to Minnesota with orders for three carloads of Drew's masking tape. According to company lore, the tape came to be called Scotch because on an early batch of two-inch wide tape, the adhesive was applied only to the edges, presumably since this was thought to be sufficient and even perhaps desirable for masking applications. One edge of the tape would hold the paper and the other would adhere to the auto body and the dry middle would not stick to anything. However, with so little adhesive, the heavy paper pulled the tape off the auto body, and a frustrated painter is said to have told the salesman, take this tape back to your stingy scotch bosses and tell them to put more adhesive on it. Though some company old-timers have labeled the story apocryphal, others give it credence by recalling that the incident helped mark the inspiration for the name, of the line of pressure-sensitive adhesive tapes that now carry the tartan trademark, presumably not because the manufacturer is stingy with adhesive, but rather because consumers can use the tape to make economical repairs on so many household items. So here you can see this is how eventually they get to the development of scotch tape right here. So it starts off with this problem of sanding being this dusty operation, so they need to come up with some way to to make a waterproof sandpaper. They do that, and then they send out a technician to go deliver it to some auto body uh, uh, mechanics and workers. And he overhears them talking about how difficult it is to to paint these auto bodies with a two-tone painting scheme, right? So you have to paint one color, and then you have to mask it, and then paint another color. And so that gives them this idea of like, well, here's a great opportunity. Here's a problem that needs to be solved. My company is great at making adhesives. We just came up with this new waterproof sandpaper. So we should be able to probably figure this out. I should be able to figure this out. And so he went off and took two years to actually develop this, but then came up with this awesome piece of technology, essentially, which is known today as scotch tape. It's something we take for granted. We use it all the time on on all these different little 
uh, projects. We use it at work, uh, taping papers together, uh, taping all sorts of stuff, right? But this shows the history of it. This shows how there was this very specific problem that led to the development of this tape that's now in every single office, probably across the world. It's pretty crazy. And then it also talks about how the name came about, which the apocryphal story was that they were calling the the bosses of of this uh, company uh, stingy Scotch bosses, which I, maybe that was the same back then. I'm not really sure. But then eventually the name stuck because this tape was used by people who didn't want to buy something new from the store when they could just fix it with this tape. And so it eventually got this name, Scotch Tape. And the story is really fun because it, it really just keeps going here. And all of these these new creative cool designs come about from just these different problems that these engineers from this company are starting to run into. And this company again is called the Minnesota Mining and Manufacturing Company, which today many of us know this company simply as 3M, right? So I'd, I'd actually never known that, that I just know the company as 3M, but originally it was 3M because it's Minnesota Mining and Manufacturing. So 3M's right there. At some point, they decided just to contract it down to 3M. But back to the story and going back to the same technician, Drew, it goes on to say, he got the idea of coating cellophane with this adhesive, which would certainly be a promising new tape to make clear packaging watertight. But sticking an adhesive that works wonderfully on crepe paper onto cellophane is easier said than done and using existing machinery to manufacture quantities of new product made of a new material usually involves considerable experimentation and development. In the case of Scotch cellophane tape, Drew's initial attempt to make it waterproof failed to come up, with, come up to expectations. It lacked proper balance of adhesives, cohesiveness, elasticity, and stretchiness. Furthermore, it had to perform in temperatures of 0 to 110 degrees Fahrenheit in humidity of 2 to 95%. Not surprisingly, at first it did not, and so presented some well-defined problems to be solved. After a year of work, Drew did solve the problems, at least to a satisfactory degree for the time. And shiny back cellophane tape was the transparent tape for many years. It was used for all sorts of mending and attaching jobs, and it's yellowing with age, it's curling up with and coming off with time, and the notorious stubbornness with which it had it hit its end and tore diagonally off the roll were accepted by users as just the way the tape was. Nothing better was available. But inventors and tinkerers like Drew saw each shortcoming as a challenge for improvement, in part because they and their bosses knew that competitors did also. Difficulties in getting scotch tape off the roll, for example, prompted the development of a dispenser with a built-in serrated edge to cut off a piece squarely and leave a neat edge handy for the next use. This provides an excellent example of how the need to dispense a product properly and conveniently can give rise to highly specialized infrastructure. And again, here we see there was this problem of dispensing the tape, and so that led to a new product design of coming up with this dispenser that you can install the tape in, and it had this built-in serrated edge to just cut the tape off nice and neatly and leave the edge right there for the next person. 
And this is something today we all take for granted, right? But there was probably thousands or hundreds of thousands of people early on using this tape who kept dealing with this problem of the tape being torn diagonally and it just wraps back onto the roll itself. And so it becomes really hard to actually find the end. And we've all dealt with this at some point. Uh, if you've used packaging tape or packing tape, uh, this happens all the time if you don't have it in a dispenser. So these dispensers were the result, again, of a problem that was realized. And it ended up being this, uh, adding a little bit of uh, something extra to these tape rolls, but something that was incredibly helpful and made the tape that much more useful. And believe it or not, the story continues. There's even more products that are, that are developed along these same lines. So let's continue with this. The characteristic of 3M that enabled it to attain such diversity in its product line is a policy of what has generally come to be called intrapreneurship. The basic idea is to allow employees of large corporations to behave within the company as they would as individual entrepreneurs in the outside world. A model entrepreneur is Art Fry, a chemical engineer who in 1974 was working in product development at 3M during the week and singing in his church choir on Sundays. He was accustomed to marking the pages in his hymnal with scraps of paper so that he could quickly locate the songs during the two services at which he sang. The procedure worked fine for the first service, but often by the second one, some of the loose scraps of paper had fallen out of its places. Fry, not having noticed this, was sometimes at a loss for words. Now, loose scraps of paper have long been used for bookmarks. Some are clearly visible in the foreground of Albrecht Duhers, not sure if I pronounced that right, famous etching of the great humanist Erasmus. And one can safely say that many a bookmark has lost its place in the four and a half centuries between the etching date of 1526 and the time when Fry reflected on the failure of bookmarks to do all that might be expected of them. Fry remembered a curious adhesive, a strong and yet easily removed unglue, that Spencer Silver, another 3M researcher, had come, up, come upon several years earlier in the course of developing very strong and very tacky adhesives. Although it was not suited to solving his immediate problem, Silver felt the unusual adhesive might have some commercial value, and so he demonstrated it to various colleagues, including Fry. At the time, no one had come up with a use for it, and so the formula for the weak adhesive was filed away. Until the Monday morning, when Fry came to work and with the idea of making sticky bookmarks that could also be removed without damaging the book. His initial attempts left some adhesive on the pages, and Fry was and Fry has surmised that some of the hymnal pages I tested my first notes on are probably still stuck together. But since it's 3M's policy and that of the other enlightened companies to allow its engineers to spend a certain percentage of their work of their work time on projects of their own choosing, a practice known as bootlegging, Fry was able to gain access to the necessary machinery and materials and to spend nearly a year and a half experimenting and refining his idea for sticky, but not too sticky, slips of paper that could be used for temporarily permanent bookmarks and notes. While Fry wanted bookmarks to stick gently to his pages, he did not want their projecting ends to stick to each other, and so adhesive was applied to only one end. This also served well for repositionable memos and removable notes. With adhesive all over their backs, these would have been as hard to peek under and remove as labels. When Fry thought the stick and remove notes were ready, he took samples to the company's marketing people 
who had to accept the idea as being commercially viable and marketing and meeting a market need before any substantial amount of the company's own time or money was to be invested in the product. There was a general lack of enthusiasm for something that would have to sell at a premium price compared with the scratch paper it was intended to replace. Its removable note function was believed to hold greater commercial potential than its sticky bookmark function. Fry was committed to his brainchild, however, and he finally convinced the office supply division of 3M to test to test market the product, which met an unperceived need. Early results were not at all promising, but in those cases where samples were distributed, customers became hooked. Though no prior need for the little sticky notes had been articulated, once they were in the hands of the office workers, all sorts of uses were found, and suddenly people couldn't do without the thing. And so here is a great example, again, of, of two principles I talk about with design. The first one, as this whole uh, book so far has been describing, is there's these problems that we all run into in our everyday lives that if you come up with a solution to it, you can find these, you can end up developing these innovative, creative, and very successful products. So this guy was, uh, he was singing in the choir and he had his hymnals that he had to use for multiple services. And so he had all these bookmarks in the hymnals. But if during one service they fell out or something happened to him, they maybe slid down into the book where you couldn't see him. In the next service, he would really struggle to find which pages he was supposed to turn to. And hence came these notes with this little sticky portion, aka post-it notes or sticky notes as we know them today. And this idea led to these products that, again, are all over the world. They're in every single office, most likely across the world. And then the other design principle that I think is really well shown here is as as the author wrote at the end of this, though no prior need for the little sticky notes had been articulated, once they were in the hands of office workers, all sorts of uses were found, and suddenly people couldn't do without the things. So here it's this idea of often people don't know exactly what they want until they see it, right? So sometimes... Uh, you you may start to fall into this trap of thinking, oh, well, I'll just ask the users or the customers what they want, and then I'll just give them what they want, and that should be a great innovative product. But a lot of the time, people don't actually know what they want until they see it. So you need to observe people and see what their problems actually are, rather than just asking them what they need. If you watch them and see what the problems are, and sometimes just watching yourself and what problems you have, like in the case of this guy with his hymnal, you can come up with these ideas that may not at first seem like a great idea. They may not seem like something that is going to sell well, make a lot of money, or or solve a need. But once you put them out there, people, they realize they had all these problems that could be solved with this one little simple addition. Maybe there are things they didn't even know were problems. You know, people just came up with hacks. They came up with workarounds. They came up with ways to solve this. They dealt with their bookmarks falling out of their books. They dealt with these, with their, losing their hymnal places during their church services. So this was an example of how there are solutions to problems that people don't even necessarily know are problems at this point. So they wouldn't be able to tell you it's a problem. But once you present them with a solution to it, it just absolutely takes off. And then finally, to end this, uh, there's one more line from the offer that I think is it's an, a perfect summary of kind of what's been going on, what we've been reading through. 
He says, again, it is not that form follows function, but rather that the form of one thing follows from the failure of another thing to function as we would like. So the point here is, and he talks a lot about this in this book, is that form doesn't always follow function. I've, I had an episode on this recently that the form usually follows failure, or at least it follows the failure of some other product to function as we would like it. So many of our innovations actually come from us finding something that doesn't function as well as we would like it to. And so someone, someone creative, someone with time on their hands, someone with that design mindset comes up with a way to solve that problem. And it ends up solving that problem for lots more people or potentially even solving other problems that they had no idea or even problems at that point. Uh, So it's a great example of why you should be constantly, you know, maybe not constantly, but being aware of your surroundings, being aware of what you struggle with, being aware of what other people are struggling with and having problems with listening, uh, like the example of the worker who went to drop off the sandpaper and overheard the problems from these auto body workers. And he listened to what their problem was, and it ended up leading to the development of scotch tape, right? Which is now just ubiquitous. It's everywhere. So make sure you're listening. Make sure you are paying attention to the things in your life and in the lives of other people that are causing problems. And those problems are actually opportunities. Okay, I'm going to leave it there for today. I hope everybody has an incredible Monday and a great week. Make sure to look for those problems that you can solve. And as always, remember, design more, despair less. Thanks for listening.